This is Jordan Edwards, and this is the Business Jiu-Jitsu Podcast. Good afternoon, Kyle Rogers. Jordan, how are you doing? Great. Welcome to the Business Jiu-Jitsu Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's a, it's yeah. a pleasure to be here, for sure. Uh, for those keeping score, on our last episode, we had Mike Rogers, who's the CEO of CRG. And Kyle Rogers is the chief operating chief operating officer of CRG, but you're not related. Not related. Not. We haven't done a 23andMe yet, but <laughs> as of right now, yeah, the stats are not related. Cool. Well, before we kick off this conversation, Kyle, I just want to uh, very quickly share a little bit about you and your background. Um, even though you're a relatively young guy, you have a tremendous amount of experience. Uh, in the special operations community as a Marine, amongst many other accolades. But um, Kyle currently lives in Toms River, New Jersey, with his wife, Maria, and his daughter, Magdalena, a native of Danbury, Connecticut. Kyle's military career began in 2010 upon graduating from Roger Williams University in Bristol, Rhode Island. He served as an infantry officer in multiple assignments and overseas deployments in the 5th Marine Regiment. He subsequently spent the remainder of his career as a special operations officer, ultimately achieving the rank of major. His special operations assignments included team commander, executive officer, and deputy commander of a special operations task force. As his final assignment, he served as the Marine Corps aide to the Secretary of the Navy. Kyle Rogers completed his undergraduate education at Roger Williams University and is currently pursuing his master's degree at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. Kyle also serves as the chief operating officer for a New Jersey-based public safety company, Critical Response Group, of which, in all transparency, I am an investor. My father seeded that company. And you are also a Brazilian jiu-jitsu athlete and a former wrestler. Correct. <laughs> that, wasn't in the, that wasn't in the bio, but I just know it off the top of my head. I make sure I make sure I annotate Brazilian jiu-jitsu on my resume <laughs> and any other correspondence I have with people because there's always that connection. I must say that when you were interviewing and being hired at CRG, uh, your resume made the rounds amongst the investors. And of course, when they saw that Brazilian jiu-jitsu is listed as your number one uh, hobby, they of course forwarded it to me and said, you got to check out this guy's resume. <laughs> That's great. Of which it is quite an impressive resume. Uh, Kyle, great to have you on the podcast. A uh, little background for everybody. A couple months ago, Kyle and I met in person for the first time. We had lunch in, in New York City, and we were talking about uh, business, leadership, jujitsu. I was coming off of a complete LCL tear, and you were coming off of a total ACL tear. You were in a, in a cast. How are you feeling? Good, good. Achilles. So Achilles. A, a whole Achilles rupture. Uh, feeling good. So back, luckily just got back in the water surfing about two weeks ago and hoping to get back on the mats here in December or January. So I've been, yeah. I've been itching for a while. <laughs> Man, that's, uh, I would feel like surfing is even uh, more dangerous in some ways. Maybe it's a mental thing for me, but yeah. the, at least the water's a, a little less impactful on you when you land and stuff and you can really control what environment, what, what conditions you go out in. Um, yeah. Sometimes when you get into a new gym, there are a couple wild cards out there. So yeah. <laughs> are you um, going in hundred percent? Are you surfing in Jersey right now in this, at this time of year? I am. Yep. 
what's the break like? Like how's the, how are the waves? It's, it's hit or miss. So we spent about nine years in California when I was in the military <clears throat> and there it's, it's consistently really good here. It's, it's hit or miss. Yeah. Last week it was really good condition. So I was able to make it out. And, you know, it's just one of those things where you just appreciate those good days so much more. And then you have obviously the cold that makes, makes you earn it a little more, but at the end yeah. of the day, it's, I love it. And regardless of the conditions, just getting out on the water is fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, give us a little background on, you know, on who you are and what it was like growing up in Connecticut and, you know, what your life was like before you joined the military. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, so I spent the first half of my childhood down in Virginia, so right outside of D.C., the Dale City, Noakesville area, and that's where that's where I got into wrestling. So I, I grew up doing martial arts. I did Taekwondo for a little while. Um, always, I watched every single Chuck Norris movie out there. Yeah. Um, and then what was your favorite? <laughs> yeah. And then when my school offered uh, wrestling, I, I I took a shot. I threw my hat in the ring. Um, Funny enough, though, it wasn't the wrestling I was expecting it to be. When I was growing up, I was a huge Hulk Hogan fan, Macho Man, Randy Savage. So I thought I was going to walk into this gymnasium, be handed a metal chair. Um, But it it turned out, obviously, not not the same. But it sucked. I mean, I got got bit by the wrestling bug. And so we moved up from Virginia, my my parents and my three sisters and myself, up to Danbury, Connecticut. And then – just by happenstance, one of the first people I met up there, uh, his dad was a wrestling coach. His family is really into wrestling. And for the rest of my time in, in Connecticut, that's what we did. We we would wrestle during the season in the wintertime. And mm-hmm. then we would travel wrestling either at camps or at tournaments uh, across the country in the summertime. So from there, we uh, his name's Frank Camisa. Frank Camisa and I stayed best friends. He was the best man at my wedding. We went different ways for college. Um, still up in New England, I wrestled at Roger Williams University. Mm-hmm. He wrestled at Bridgewater State, where he's he's still the head coach. Oh wow! Uh, program now, um, and yeah, I wrestled through the four years of college. It was challenging. It was a great experience for me. Um, tremendous amount of learning and and ownership that came with the process. But I knew that <clears throat> I always knew in the back of my mind that there's an aspect of me that wanted to serve. Uh, whether it was with the Marine Corps or the Army, it, it really uh, it didn't matter too much to me at the time. It's just I knew I knew that that's the direction that I was heading in. Yeah. So when, when I got to college, I found out that the Marine Corps offers a program called Platoon Leaders Course, and so it's two times two six week segments. You go during your summer break in college, you go to Quantico, Virginia, and you go through our Officer Candidate School. So. For the listeners not too familiar, it's essentially our, our boot camp for Marine Corps officers. Um, so I went there my in between my junior, my sophomore and junior, then my junior and senior. And when I graduated, I, I commissioned as a second lieutenant in the Marine Corps and then spent the next 10 months down in Quantico, Virginia. So during that period, the first six-month period is, uh, we call it the basic school. Mm-hmm. And that is a school where every Marine Corps officer goes to. And you don't know your your job or your specialty at that point. Um, entering into the program, I thought that every Marine was an infantry officer. So I was surprised that there was 30 different Marine specialties when I got down there. Right. And and so the, the pressure got turned up a little bit because 
the job that you get is directly related to your performance at that school. Mm. So I, I jumped two feet in, um, lucky enough to get selected as an infantry officer upon graduation, went just across the street from the school to the infantry officers course. Um, one of the, one of the most prestigious programs, schools that the military offers. I mean, it's just, uh, the amount of learning that you get there, not just tactics related, but leadership and who you are as a person really, um, really comes out in those three months. Yeah. I graduated from that. I packed up my car and drove out to California and that's where I spent the majority of my military career. Um, so the first, first half was in the infantry. I started out as a platoon commander, uh, platoon commanders in charge of 30, 30 Marines. We were a, an anti-armor platoon. So heavy machine guns, missiles, javelin missiles. Um, and that was a tremendous learning experience for me. I was a 22-year-old a, a standing in front of 30 combat-hardened Marines and 5th yeah. Marines, which is one of the, the most historic regiments that the Marine Corps has. And it was a lot of trial by fire for myself, just really figuring out who I was as a leader, um, what works, what doesn't work. And what ultimately came out is what works is you got to be authentic. Yeah. You go through school and you, you're introduced to all these um, really top notch Marine officers who you want to emulate, but that's not necessarily who you are as a person. So that first two years as a platoon commander was, was phenomenal for me, painful at times, but I came out of that with a good understanding of who I was. Wow. So you, uh, what, what was the motivation? I mean, I know you said you always wanted to, to go into the military. Did you come from a military family? You know, a little bit. So I had both of my grandfathers served in the army my great-grandfather was a POW during the Battle of the Bulge in World mm -hmm. War II. My father spent a little bit of time on a submarine. Um, nobody was a Marine, though. So I was, I, I kind of fell into that just by exploring Being what I A wrestler. Did. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, I really, there's a lot of reasons why I wanted to join. I mean, I knew that in order for me to reach my potential as a person, like I had, I had to surround myself with great people. And where else to to find that as a as a 22 year old guy than the Marine Corps or some some elite service. Mm -hmm. So that then is a good opportunity to go out and see the world, really put myself in an environment where I'm going to be challenged continuously. Yeah. No. You're I believe you're in your early 30s. 34. Yeah. You're 34. Yeah. So you were um, you were in middle school during 9-11, the end of middle school, beginning of high school. And so when you graduated by college, we were at war. So going into the military, you didn't, it's not like, you, it wasn't peacetime. You, you basically, if you go to the military, you're, you know, you're going to war. Uh, I wonder what that's like for the psychology of, you know, a young person, um, you know, going and, and seeking out a leadership role, uh, you know, an officer school, it's, you know, very different than the mentality that I had. I, I have to be honest with you, I didn't even know it was an option for me. You know, it's like, I didn't know there wasn't, my peers weren't really going. I had a few friends from my high school that then ended up going into the military, but so grateful for, you know, your decision of keeping us, keeping this country free and, um, 
it's not lost on me. So thank you so much for your service. But what's it like being an 18 year old coming out of college or, or excuse me, 20, 20, uh, how do you 21, 22 and going oh, yeah. into go, choosing the military? No, it's, it's a big, it was a big decision. Um, honestly, as a 22 year old though, you really, at least I didn't, you don't really process everything uh, holistically. So in my head was, yeah, this is a, this is a cool opportunity to go do something exciting. Uh, America was at war on both in Iraq and Afghanistan. And, you know, I, I was, I felt so fortunate growing up, you know, it's, if this is the way that I can give back and be around amazing people, then <clears throat> that was the choice for me. I mean, the, the circumstances of, of joining with us being in two different wars um, was, it was compensated by the, the opportunity to, to challenge myself, serve our country and just be around great people. Yeah. One of my uh, favorite HBO series was um, Generation Kill. Did you watch that show? Oh, yeah. Uh, but more than even the show, it, the show is what turned me on to it. But um, there were three really, really good books on the heels of, uh, of the Iraq War. Generation Kill was one of them. And then there was another book called One Bullet Away by this, uh, the guy from Generation Kill, Nate Fick. He was Nate one Fick. of the platoon commanders. And then the book uh, Call Sign Chaos by um, Jim Mattis, who was the general leading that. So you had the, the, the view from the general in a book, the view from a, a journalist following this uh, company, and then you had a view from an individual officer. And I was so fascinated by, by all their perspectives um, really, really interesting to, you know, learn about the Marines and, and, and learn about it from all these different, all the different angles. One sure. of the things that Jim Mattis said in his book was, uh, the, the emphasis that they put on the leadership for reading. And he, he had a great quote in that book. He said, uh, if you haven't read hundreds of books then you're functionally illiterate. And I was surprised to hear that from a Marine because that's not the, uh, the reputation that they carry. But maybe you could just expound on a little bit of this, like what life in the Marine Corps was like from a leadership side. No, I mean, it's th those are three great books that you brought up because, I mean, one of the <clears throat> I read One Bullet Away. I read all I read One Bullet Away and um, Generation Kill prior to even joining the military. Oh, wow. One bullet away really resonated with me. I mean, Nate Fick did a fantastic job really just explaining the journey and some of the challenges that he, he teased out early on were, were some of the exact same challenges that I faced as a young platoon commander. And <clears throat> that was really one of the, the first times that I heard about the competitiveness of becoming an infantry officer in the Marine Corps. Yeah. Uh, so it really changed my perspective going down. There's, you gotta be dialed in. Um, was that your role? Was that your first leadership role be, being a platoon commander? Was that when he was in being dramatized in that show where he was in charge of a platoon? Is that, was that the same level? That's platoon. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Um, so it's, I mean, you're, you're pretty young, young guys and girls who are going into the service and that's, that's your first job out of the basic school or infantry officers course is going in as a platoon commander. So it's, it's a tremendous responsibility, um, but wouldn't trade it for the world. It was, it was one of the best moments, one of the best two years of my life, for sure. Mm -hmm. But going back to General Mattis's quote, hands down, I mean, it's you get to relive 
so many, um, so many of other people's experiences just through reading and having that constant thirst for knowledge. I heard, I heard an interesting quote the other day and it was, um, I may butcher it. I can't associate it with the person who said it, but it was the only future out there is the history that you haven't read. So mm. it, it's, and I can, it's a pretty profound. I mean, it, it, it's just really, there's been so many of the, the same experiences that we're facing today, same circumstances. If you look back through some of the history books, there's parallels. They may not Absolutely. Um, exactly resemble it, but there's certainly some similarities. Books have been my greatest source of comfort in my in my hardest times because when I've been running companies, we could talk a little bit later at your role as the chief operating officer of CRG, but when I've been dealing with hard problems and I feel like, am I the only person that's ever been going through this? I have to quickly remind myself, no, there's hundreds of thousands of other businesses. There's thousands of years of history and there's leaders and generals and presidents and uh, CEOs that have been going through these things. And, and all you have to do is to unlock the wisdom is just open up those books. You, you crack those pages and you find the answers. And so uh, I didn't really uh, develop a love of reading until I was 28. And I was so lost uh, running my companies because I had all this early success. It was built completely off just talent and what I had learned in school. And then it only got me so far. And then I didn't have the answers to the questions that people were asking me. And I said, I better learn. <laughs> Thank God I'd already started jujitsu because jujitsu gave me the, the fundamental understanding of you, you're a white belt. Like you have to go tap and learn and tap and learn and, and, and get to the, uh, and get to the knowledge. So, but I, I don't want to get ahead of myself. I, if it's okay with you, I, I would love to read another blurb about you. I don't mean to make you blush, but um, I want to, I want to highlight some of the, the leadership roles that you've had um, in your young career already. Um, leading over 800 enemy kills to guiding elite forces, these Marines were honored for combat ops. And I'm just going to skip down. Captain Kyle Rogers led the Special Operations Task Force 511.2 in support of Operation Pacific Eagle Philippines from January to December 2017. The captain conducted advise and assist mission with Joint Task Force Marawi, a 7,000-man unit that facilitated the retaking of the city of Marawi, which had been under the control of ISIS-P, a Philippine-based ISIS-aligned organization. He was awarded the Douglas A. Zambiak Award for Outstanding Leadership in the Marine Force Special Operations Command for his role as team commander. His leadership and efforts led to more than 800 enemy killed in action to include the FBI's most wanted terrorist in the region. According to the remarks made from his award citation and the complete uh, disintegration of ISIS-P leadership in the Southern Philippines. That most wanted terrorist was In Salan Hapian, who was killed in October, according to an Associated Press report. I don't make light of any of this. Um, and I'm not, don't romanticize it at all. I see it through the lens of uh, incredible leadership from a very young person. Uh, to be, to receive that kind of award for uh, assisting and leading 7,000 men uh, into battle. I mean, it's crazy. The reason why I'm so fascinated by this is because I've used these principles in business, but it's not life or death. Sometimes people treat it life or death, but it's not, you know, when you're at war, it's, you're, it's truly life, life or death. So I was, I was hoping that maybe you could remark a little bit on your experiences in this kind of leadership position. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The, 
the the quote i mean whenever i hear it it's it's a little uncomfortable because it it gives me a, a bigger share of the success than what i what i deserve i mean and the zembic award that that award is named after just a, a lion of a marine who passed away in iraq when he was <clears throat> when he was fighting our nation's battles um so it's i view that as a tremendous honor even just being loosely associated with that man's name and i look at the award uh in the military you have really two types of awards you have personal awards and you have unit awards um i was told by one of my bosses a, a few years ago that every award that an officer gets is a unit award because you can't do it by yourself it, it takes a team um but that that experience specifically was it had a profound effect on me i mean it leading up to a lot of these deployments, uh, leading up to that, I, I never deployed to Iraq or Afghanistan, just my timing didn't align. And when I heard I was going to the Philippines, it was kind of like, what was me initially, right? It's, you want to get the, the sexy missions, but then uh, timing, timing is everything. So a month before we deployed, uh, the, the ISIS trend was starting to, to build and foreign fighters weren't allowed, weren't able to get into Iraq and Syria just based off of the impact that U.S. forces were having. So the Southern Philippines was the next best thing. So just prior to me getting to, just prior to me getting into country, yeah. the ISIS faction there decided to seize the exact city that we were deploying to. And it was a city that had about 200,000 residents. Uh, there's probably... 60, 70,000 displaced individuals, and then another couple thousand that were held hostage inside of the city. So working up to that, we, we trained for two years uh, on a lot of the, the core tasks that are specific for special operations. Mm -hmm. But there's some environments that you show up to that are just so ambiguous and undeveloped that your training is important, but it really doesn't prepare you to, to answer all of the, the tasks that are required of you. So the 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 first day I showed up, we have a thing called advance party. So it's, or we call it Advon. So it's just a, a small contingent of the team deploys forward. And we really just do the, the handoff with the people that we're placing and get a feel for the, the situation that we're going into. So showing up to the city, it was myself, uh, my, one of my senior enlisted, his name's Mike, fantastic human, and our communication specialist. So there's three of us going in. Wow. We had a, a week-long turnover planned, um, so we were going to just really get into the weeds with the people that we were replacing to get a full understanding of the situation, the threat picture, friendly forces. Uh, within, something happened on our flight over there, but that week turned into about a four-hour stretch from us getting there at 6 p.m., and our, the people that we were replacing took off at 10. Oh, my God. <laughs> so we had a four-hour turnover, um, and... Mike and I woke up the next morning and we kind of had this really just like, I want to call it, it was a special moment where we were sitting there looking at the city. There's an active gunfight going on. Wow. And then I turned to Mike and said, Mike, do you know what we're supposed to be doing right now? He's like, no. He's like, I'm so happy you said that. <laughs> and it's like, okay, well now that we're, now that we're level set there, let's go start talking to people and figure this thing out. Um, so just, through the working with our Filipino partners who, who are fantastic. I mean, they're some of the, the bravest people I've 
ever encountered in my life. And what they did in, in that city is, is truly remarkable and they wow. deserve all the credit. I mean, they, the conditions that they were surviving in and fighting in um, were, were truly extreme and with minimal equipment. I mean, with what they had is not commensurate with what us forces are equipped with. Um, so yeah. it was an honor to, I lived with them for that entire period. Uh, it was an honor to, to get to know them, to, to work alongside them and to ultimately do what we can to help make them successful. How many Marines followed you there? You know, what was the, what was the size of the force the, of uh, your ultimate command? For the Marines, there was a small contingent of us. It was, I think at our max, there were 10 of us. Wow. So it was a, it was a combination. So we had about 10 Marines who were from my core team, uh, a couple Marines that came from, I think they're from Okinawa, Hawaii. Then we had a couple Green Berets that were supporting as well. So it was, it was a joint team. Um, we all, a lot of us had different backgrounds, but I'd say about at the max, maybe 15 individuals total. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, you know, what you said there about landing and getting the handoff. And now all of a sudden it's like, go figure it out. You know, there's this level of entrepreneurship that mm -hmm. comes in of that's, that, that's one of the things about the special operations community that I've always been so you know impressed with and, and that I admire so much. One of my close friends from growing up, his name is Jesse Levin. He has an organization called Tactivate, and he basically tries to find people like you and bring them into the entrepreneurial world and match them up in all kinds of businesses. But they also do dis disaster response all over the world. So anytime there's any kind of natural disaster, he tries to be the first boots on the ground and do exactly what you just described. He yep. goes to a foreign country. So he's been in Ukraine for the past couple months. And everyone's leaving and he's going in and he's got a car full of medical supplies and toys for kids and food and whatever he can bring. And then he just starts coordinating logistics. And it reminded me so much of what you just said is like, you just land like, all right, let's figure this out. And, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's really incredible too. And, and how old are you? 2017. Let's see how God, time flies. It feels like it was 2017, like two minutes ago, five years ago. Right. I mean, I was, Today's my five-year wedding anniversary. I saw that. Congratulations. That, Thank that's you. special. And, uh, and that was in 2017, so five years ago. So you were 29 years old or 28, depending on the month. Yeah. Did I turn – I think I may have turned 30 when I like – right when I got back. Um, no, no, I turned 30 in the Philippines, I think, wow. on that deployment. But, yeah, it was, it was young. I, mean, we were, we, I think the average age of my team was probably 34, so we had a yeah. few – the majority of the people are a little older than I am, but I mean, just, you couldn't find a better group of people without a doubt. I mean, that's just, that was those six months with that problem set and that group of people. I mean, it really was just left such a remarkable impact in my life. Yeah, for sure. And that experience led you to becoming the, uh, the Marine aide to the secretary of the Navy. Is that my Bridging yeah, the gap so, on that correctly. I mean, there might have been a couple stops in between, but it eventually led there. So I did. I did do one more trip back to the Philippines uh, in between in between those jobs. So I went initially as a as a team commander for Marawi, and then about a year and a half, two years later, uh, so my team fell under a, a broader special operations element uh, that had a few a couple hundred people with it. So I came back and I was the deputy commander for the task force at that point. So I had a, that was a great experience as well. I mean, certainly different, but it really opened my aperture to 
what are all of the ingredients that make this secret sauce, right? It's, and it's the stuff that the backside support that's just so critically important, whether it's the, the logistics, the intelligence, the communications, uh, just, just all the effort and the expertise that it takes just to have those functions run to support the people that are forward deployed was, was a great experience for me. Yeah. Um, but that all, yeah, that all that led to the, my last year in the Marine Corps was down at the Pentagon and I was the aide for the, the secretary of the Navy, Carl Stel, Carlos del Toro. Yeah. Um, what, what kind of lessons did you learn working, you know, in the Pentagon about making executive decisions on behalf of a very large, very bureaucratic, you know, system, which is the U S military and the U S in the, the American Navy. For sure. I think that the, one of the most eye-opening things for me going there is, and you touch it on your, you touch it on your book with your, with your father. And again, congratulations on that. That was a, that was a fantastic read. And I, so many of those points resonated with me, Thank you but for saying that. the, the brilliance and the basics, I mean, the leadership principles don't change regardless of what level you're at. I mean, at the, the executive leadership level that I was lucky enough to observe on a day-to-day -day basis, I mean, those, those principles, how you're treating people, the uh, controlling what you can control, um, keeping, keeping a steady hand during chaotic situations and, and not losing the, uh, being able to see the forest through the trees, right? Well, what's the end state? Yeah. Uh, so, so being able to get a peek behind the curtain at that level was, was unbelievable. And, uh, my boss who I was working for was a fantastic man, um, treated everybody like a family. Uh, but he was he was grounded in his principles. He had conviction on the things that he believed that the Navy should stand for. And those were his guiding principles. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, talking about executive leadership, we brought up Nate Fick before. And so I guess it's been almost maybe between 15 and 20 years since that uh, that show came out and those books came out, which is wild. Um, but I've always been like following this guy's career because I just admired him so much. And I, you know, it's like followed him on LinkedIn and he's not a celebrity or an influencer by any means. He still is to me. I mean, <laughs> he do, but uh, you know, he started this like cybersecurity company. I was always interested. I was watching it, you know, just like, Oh man, you know, looking at the LinkedIn updates, a news article would come out and uh, I was like a, a groupie for this guy. And then I saw a couple weeks ago that uh, Biden appointed him to be the secretary or the, or the person in charge of leading America's defense against cyber, um, cyber crime, cyber intelligence, cyber war, I guess. And I was like, wow, a good decision. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to comment on the state of the White House or the state of our country, economy, war. But, I, you know, I can give even an enemy credit when credit is due. Not that Biden's my enemy, he's my president. But I'm, what I'm saying is, is he did a great job by bringing this guy in. I and mean, this guy is uh, someone I admire tremendously. Just talking about executive levels, it just reminded me. I wanted to put a final stamp on the Nate Fick conversation. Sure. Um, so... You uh, you make your way out of the Navy, and um, did you did you have a couple working experiences before CRG, or did were you recruited right into CRG? No, CRG was I found them, and it was really the reason <clears throat> I wasn't planning on getting out of the military at all. Um, but I, I saw the company, I saw a few guys that I had served with in special operations were working there. Yeah, and once I once I really kind of figured out what the company's mission was. It, uh, it was an easy decision for me. This is, this is th there's a significant gap in 
our public safety apparatus. This is a fantastic tried and true solution that the company offers and they're, they're fantastic people that are doing it. So yeah. let, let me, let me take a pause there for a second, sure. because I, I realized I got ahead of myself and didn't describe what CRG is. Uh, I was talking to Mike Rogers yesterday. These podcasts are going to come out about a week apart from each other. We will show the video of CRG. It's uh, the name of the company is critical response group. And what the company does is create and distribute uh, maps and the maps are overlaid of all different buildings, schools, public infrastructure, stadiums, uh, towers in New York City, any piece of public infrastructure where there could be some kind of life safety issue, fire, terrorist attack, active shooter, anything. And you would be surprised to know that most of these maps and floor plans are not readily available to first responders, police, firemen, et cetera. And so when the police officers show up at the school in Uvalde, for example, it's chaos. They don't know what to do. The shooter is in a bit part of the building. They, they can't even find the maps. They have to go pull them out an hour later. Um, this has been dramatized so many times in movies where a building is surrounded and they're looking at a floor plan trying to figure out how to get in. Um, and so what Critical Response Group does is create and then be able to distribute these maps to the correct uh, departments. And the work that you're doing is amazing. And I should also follow up by saying that the reason why Mike was influenced to start this business is because this was military technology that they were using in the special operations community in, in, the, in Iraq and Afghanistan. And so he brought that technology from a military application out into the public. So I just wanted to give that little frame of reference as we started talking about it, just in case anybody who's watching or listening to this, uh, it's like, what are they talking about? CRG. <laughs> um, I should also mention before I have you give you give your impressions on it, that, uh, a big shout out to my father who met with Mike and seeded this company when it was just an idea five years ago. Um, my dad is very, very passionate about security and safety. And he told me when I was in college in a ski trip in 2004, my best friend, he said, if you want to be a billionaire, get into one of three things. He said, security, green energy, or um, education reform. So those three things are going to be billion-dollar businesses. And he's made investments, I believe, in two of those. I don't think anything in education, really, but in, uh, in, the, in the other two, in security. And so just been a real honor. I, I was not an investor in the seed stage, but I was an investor in the, in the latest round. And I'm incredibly grateful to be uh, a very, very small part of the company. So, yeah, what, give me some of the, your impressions. Was this technology that you were using while you were in the military? And, uh, and then what do you think about the technology generally? Yeah. I mean, it's it, frankly, the, the technology is just as common to us as wearing a helmet and body armor. I mean, it, it, it was so foreign, the idea of going out to an objective and not having a, a map in the, in the special operations community, we call them gridded reference graphics. Mm -hmm. So it's just a piece of overhead imagery that's overlaid with, with grids and you turn it into a game of battleship. So Letters right. on the top, numbers on the left-hand side. Uh, and each of us have our own individual stories of how this, just a simple technique has either saved lives, prevented a, a disaster. Uh, the one that sticks out in my head the most was during the, my deployment to Marawi City in the Philippines. My team was predominantly individuals from my team back in the state side, but we had a few other people who didn't share the same background or training as us. We were living with the Filipinos who had a whole different system of training, uh, different language. And we had Air, Air Force and Navy pilots that 
we've never met before, but we used, we were able to, to use this concept, number out buildings in the city. And, and that really flat, flattened communications and expedited information that we were trying to, to convey to each other. So one day, I mean, we, we had a Navy pilot call out, uh, I believe it was building 72 inside the city. And I was like right in the, the heart of the, the ISIS controlled territory. Mm-hmm. Say, a south side of building 72, we have a white flag out of the, the second story built second story window. So we're like, okay, well, we know exactly where that is. So the next day they, the Navy pilots took off. We had one of our own drones. We flew it down to the south side of building 72. And sure enough, we saw a white flag and there was a group of women and children who were trapped in that area of the city. Mm. So with that information, uh, because us and the pilots had the same map, we went over to our Filipino counterparts who were using the same exact map. And we said, building 72 south side, this is what's there. And then within within 24, 48 hours, they were able to recover 17 hostages uh, from that building. And I don't think that we would have been able to do that if we weren't using this technique to connect all the pieces. So having, having that experience and um, we've all seen other ones that were just as impactful. The fact that this wasn't already implemented in stateside was mind blowing to me. So when when I spoke to a couple (laughs) of my friends who are already at the company, the first thing that came out of my mind was, yeah, I mean, it's just, it makes sense, but this has to be a thing that's already implemented. Yeah. And when I got a real, like a, a good understanding of the current situation, then, I mean, frankly, it, it was a no brainer. And I feel like a lot of the reasons why I left the military to go to CRG were a lot of the same reasons why I, I joined the military, right? You know, the, the people and the purpose are the, the two things that were the guiding principles. Um, but now it's, it's just, uh, unfortunately, there's been a few tragedies that have driven up the urgency. Yeah. And we're really on an information campaign now because when you explain it to people, it, the light bulb goes off. Yeah. But it's like, it's, it, I guess you can compare it to if someone's been eating soup with a fork their entire life and you show up with a spoon, <laughs> and this, is, this is a better way to do it. Huh? Yeah. It's, um, it's always hard to, m- most people, decision makers are late to the party. Yeah. You know, the, the mavericks who are early, Sometimes you're too early. Sometimes you're the early adopter. Sometimes, you know, I think Simon Sinek, who, who wrote the book, uh, Start With Why, has a great YouTube video and visualization on this about reaching critical mass on decision making and adoption. Um, it's so clear to you. You wouldn't go into, into battle without one of these. And how could every single piece of critical infrastructure in our country not make this standard? It's just, it seems so simple. And, uh, and I think that your, the work that you're doing to, to make that happen is, is so important uh, so that we can, you know, stop situations like this happening. I mean, you can't stop fires. You can't stop things from happening. There are going to be terrible, terrible things that happen. But if you have uh, the right measures in place, um, at least maybe you can mitigate some of that. And uh, I hope that this technology gets, you know, more widespread and, and, and more adopted. I know the work that, you, that you're doing over there is just is, is such good work. And, uh, and since they brought you on, they're getting even more organized for scale. Do uh, you want to talk a little bit about, you know, the kind of the company as you found it when you arrived and then maybe some of the things that are going on as you're growing? Well, I mean, a lot of it, I mean, the company, they have the right people in the right place and the, the need is 
across the country is uh, really the, the biggest challenge is how, how do you satisfy the, the demand that's just growing, especially as the company's becoming more well-known. For, for me, largely, it's been, it's just been kind of drinking from a fire hose coming from the military into this role. It's just been fascinating to learn about the different aspects of the company and just make small tweaks if I can here and there. Um, But it's, they've got, they've got great people in great positions. And I think it's, it's going to be just open road ahead for, for everyone. Yeah. All right. Let's, let's put a stamp on this podcast. It is the business jujitsu podcast, after all, uh, and you are a jujitsu, a jujitsu hero, as they say in uh, Portuguese. Um, how did you find jujitsu? Like, where, where in the where in the journey did it pop into your life? Southern California, which I guess is now the it's pretty yeah. much the mecca of Brazilian jujitsu, uh, probably across the globe right now, but. I was often would uh, have something to say about that. <laughs> yeah. Right. I guess that's, that's taken over now. Yeah. Um, but so I was, is when I went back to California in, in special operations, I was probably in the military for like five years at that point. And I really, I hadn't stepped on a mat since I left college wrestling. And about that time I, I started getting the itch again. Um, so I, I started coaching a couple of the guys who were on my wrestling team. Their sons were, were starting to get into it. So I go to the practices, uh, coach the team, then take them to tournaments and, and make some uh, sit in their corners. And while it was, it was great to be back in that environment, it still wasn't fully scratching the itch. Yeah. And I guess around that same time, I started listening to the Jocko podcast <laughs> and he does a great, he does a great information campaign uh, promoting jujitsu. Yeah, he does. So I found a I found a Gracie Baja gym right in San Clemente, and that's where I jumped in and fell in love ever since. Mm. And so I, I started out there, did it for a few years. That's when I had a couple deployments with special operations, and then moved to to Virginia. And I didn't have a Gracie Baja there, so I went over to a Six Blades with Emil Takeuchi, who's a fantastic. He runs a fantastic academy there. Um, picked it up there and then I'm up here in New Jersey. So wait for my Achilles to heal and, uh, and get back on the mat. Well, you are in another hotbed of, of uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu in New Jersey down by you. You have Tom DeBlas, yep. not far from Ricardo Almeida. Uh, you know, you could train with guys like Frankie Edgar and Zabit and all those killers that uh, come from yeah. New Jersey. Obviously that's where uh, Gary Tonin and, and, Gordon Ryan and all those guys started out. And so there's a huge community of Brazilian jiu-jitsu and right where you live and mm-hmm. close by. So, and I'm not too far, so we can meet up every once in a blue moon and uh, get some training and I hope. <laughs> For sure. I do want to do a CRG Brazilian jiu-jitsu retreat. That sounds amazing. I'm all about it. Yeah. I do. I do have a funny story from the, the Gracie Baja gym up in California. I mean, for those who haven't been to Orange County, it's a, it's kind of like a, a weird convergence of a bunch of different uh, personalities and character types. And at the end of the adult class that we would go to was always on the tail of the children's class. You know, a lot of uh, academies at the end of the class, they, they do a great job of tying in some of these life lessons for yeah. these young kids. And I showed up one day and the professor was talking to the students it was really about substance abuse. He was saying, you know, you guys are going to middle school, uh, some of you are in elementary school, and you might see some kids that are doing 
things and, and taking things that they shouldn't be taking. Um, and he starts seeing some kids give some North South. It's like, they, they know what he's talking about. Yeah. He's like, do you guys, do you guys want to provide some examples of, of what, what's out there and what kids are taking? And I'm not really knowing what to expect. I mean, this is just a, a crazy group of Southern California, Orange County kids. As so they start <laughs> off with just these crazy hardcore party drugs. And you're like, yeah. oh, then the kid's like alcohol, tobacco. And then one kid just like, couldn't keep it. in. he's like, sugar. <laughs> you just have like they, they just rounded all the bases of, of what uh lifestyles you could find down there but it was, yeah. it was hilarious those mat chats are so important and a big influence on this podcast and a huge part of my life these past 13 and plus years yeah. uh and yeah i think we had a really good one today yeah uh, sure. i i I'm so grateful for you being on the, on the podcast and sharing a little bit of your story. It's uh, I know you said it could be a little uncomfortable, easy in the seat to, to hear me talk about you, but um, just know that, you know, a lot of young people listen, listen to this podcast. And one of the things I often read in the news is how lazy and unmotivated the next generation are. They only want to go on TikTok and play video games. And I have found that categorically untrue. I find it to be bullshit. The amount of young people as early as 11 years old who have been reaching out to me of all ages, um, inspired by the, what they're hearing on this podcast, it's shaping career trajectory, deal making, uh, so many, so many parts of their life. And uh, that was one of the unintended consequences because I, when I started this, that wasn't what I thought was going to happen. But sure. it's been one of the things that that's so great. And so to hear uh, your story, I know for a fact is going to impact a lot of people. And uh, and I'm grateful for you sharing it. Well, I'm really thankful for you. You doing this. This is uh, I started listening to your podcast a couple months ago. And it's really impressive how it's grown and some of the the people that you've, you've interviewed on on the show. And it, it's important. These are important life lessons for the next generation for people to hear, even if it's just some of the challenges that we've faced throughout our careers or our lives, um, being able to share that and have a platform to, to access it is, is, it's critically important, especially for young kids who are, they have access to an infinite amount of information these days, you know? So yeah. being able to have someone like you to go to, uh, to get the good stuff is great. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. And I do want to say to the audience, especially our young audience, that please reach out to me. Uh, your peers and contemporaries are, and it's been an honor to help some of you get jobs, uh, sponsor many of you, um, talk about business deals, talk about, you know, people have asked me about flipping homes, buying apartment buildings, starting fashion brands. So I get a lot of joy out of having, having these conversations. And you know, that's what jujitsu is all about. My sensei always says, each one, teach one. And you're, if you're not learning, if you're not passing it on. And so one of the greatest ways to learn is to, you know, to teach and to have these conversations. And I'm really grateful to do them out in public. Uh, I have a feeling and I hope that you'll be accepting to come back on the podcast again in the future. Keep us updated on what's going on with you and CRG. And uh, maybe today we did a lot of career highlights, but I would actually, I would love to know some career lowlights next time and yeah. uh, learn about some of the struggle. Cause I think that the struggle is, is equally as important when talking about, um, uh, about the story, Kyle, uh, thank you so much. Look forward to talking to you soon. Have a great day. It was a pleasure. Thank you.